Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover septic pelvic thrombophobitis. The entity of septic pelvic thrombophlebitis, or SPT, has evolved profoundly over the last century. The bulk of cases in early reports were mostly obstetric, with a significant number following abortions. Gynecological cases with this complication represented the minority, but usually included cases of ovarian malignancy, as well as infectious cases like pelvic inflammatory disease. By the end of the 19th century, von Ricklinghausen described an entity in which pelvic infection was characterized by thrombosis of one or both ovarian veins while the remaining pelvis was normal, proposing surgical excision as the therapeutic approach of choice. But since the 19th century, of course, treatment has evolved to include the mainstay of treatment being broad-spectrum intravenous antibiotics. The addition of anticoagulation still remains somewhat controversial, but we'll dive into that topic in this podcast. Septic pelvic thrombophobitis is actually divided into two broad categories, ovarian vein thrombosis or deep septic pelvic thrombophobitis by itself, both of which generally present with ongoing persistent fever and abdominal pain despite the use of intravenous prolonged antibiotics. Now, septic pelvic thrombophobitis demonstrates the Virchow triad completely. Peripartum endothelial damage occurs due to delivery or secondary to infection. Venous stasis occurs due to pregnancy-induced venous plexus dilation, which frequently leads to retrograde ovarian venous flow from left to right, possibly accounting for the right-sided propensity of the disease when ovarian vein thrombosis occurs. Lastly, pregnancy is a relative state of hypercoagulability, especially in the peripartum and postpartum periods. Now let's briefly talk about ovarian vein thrombosis in addition to septic pelvic thrombophobitis. So let's get this clear. SPT can happen alone, which symbolizes small thrombi within the broad ligament plexus with or without a thrombus located in the ovarian vein. Ovarian vein thrombosis is an uncommon event, historically attributed to either PID or the postpartum period. New data actually shows that malignancy, specifically ovarian malignancy, can be the highest risk factor for the development of ovarian vein thrombosis. Ovarian vein thrombosis is estimated to complicate about 1 in 600 to 1 in 2,000 pregnancies, typically in the postpartum period. The incidence has been reported to be as high as 0.18 in the general population, yet the natural history of ovarian vein thrombosis is not well described, including risk factors and recurrence rates. Knowledge of these variables would be useful for the development of optimal treatment strategies. Now, in the absence of this data, there's little to guide clinicians in the management of patients with ovarian vein thrombosis. But as of 2017, new data has shown more evidence and more light on this topic, and we'll cover that in just a minute. Anatomically, remember that the ovarian vein represents a portion of the deep venous system with a direct connection to the inferior vena cava on the right and the renal vein on the left. 
anatomical differences between the right and left ovarian veins have been proposed as contributing to both the pathogenesis and the location of ovarian vein thrombosis. Once again, ovarian vein thrombosis has historically been found on the right with frequencies as high as 90% in some studies. Venous tortuosity and length of the right ovarian vein, which once again enters directly into the inferior vena cava, have been thought to be contributing variables. All right, we'll continue talking about ovarian vein thrombosis as its own category a little bit later in the podcast. Let's return, though, to the general category of septic pelvic thrombophobitis, a suspicion of SBT with or without ovarian vein thrombosis should arise when fever, which usually follows a spiking pattern, fails to respond to standard broad-spectrum IV antibiotic therapy. Septic pelvic thrombophobitis was diagnosed in 20% of patients with prolonged febrile morbidity in one study, which was defined as more than five days of fever, regardless of appropriate antimicrobial treatment. Clinically, patients can present with a complaint of flank or lower abdominal pain, typically presenting as non-colicky and constant. Pain may be of variable intensity and may radiate to the groin or the upper abdomen, and paralytic ileus can also occur upon physical examination. The patient usually does not appear toxic, and there may be some tenderness to palpation in the lower abdomen. There may be an occasional tender abdominal mass described as a rope or a sausage-like entity can be identified typically on the right. This represents the most diagnostic finding in an abdominal exam, but it is actually pretty rare. Other clinical characteristics of septic pelvic thrombophobitis have changed over time. Pulmonary emboli was considered a criterion for diagnosis of the condition in the past, but thankfully it's no longer required for an SBT diagnosis. Initial reports described pulmonary embolic phenomenon to be frequent, small, and multiple. We'll discuss that a little bit later in this podcast. For a diagnosis of septic pelvic thrombophlebitis, a suspicion should be kept high, especially in patients that have persistent fevers despite persistent IV antibiotic therapy. Now, historically, patients who did not defervesce after antibiotic therapy had been started on empiric anticoagulation, although the literature does not support the use of anticoagulation for septic pelvic thrombophlebitis alone, but it is recommended for ovarian vein thrombosis. To make the diagnosis more clear, once it's suspected, CT and MRI imaging are helpful because the thrombus can be identified in about 20% of these cases. Ultrasound is of little utility in the diagnosis of septic pelvic thrombophobitis. So, for patients with persistent, especially postpartum fever, remember to get that abdominal pelvic CT or MRI to rule out pelvic abscess or SPT. For treatment of septic pelvic thrombophobitis, the main cornerstone is still medical therapy. Although when Van Recklenhausen first described the condition in the 1800s, surgical ligation of the suspected vessel was proposed. Current recommendations are to begin with broad-spectrum antibiotics to cover the likely pathogens of endometritis like group A and B streptococci, coliformed bacteria, and anaerobes. The length of treatment is debatable, but it varies from 48 hours if leukocytosis normalizes to a seven-day course. Once again, the treatment for septic pelvic thrombophobitis without ovarian vein thrombosis still is just antibiotic therapy. 
Now, although it makes some clinical sense for anticoagulation in cases of septic pelvic thrombophobitis, not including ovarian vein thrombosis, the results of a randomized trial conducted by Brown et al. refuted the use of anticoagulants unless an ovarian vein thrombosis exists. Now, what happened in this randomized trial, patients with SPT were given traditional intravenous antibiotics with or without anticoagulation. The duration of fever was similar in the group given heparin and antimicrobials compared with the group treated solely with antimicrobial therapy. So, for SPT without ovarian vein thrombosis, the consensus, although there's still no guidelines based on the college, the consensus is still to treat medically with antibiotic therapy. However, if an ovarian vein thrombosis is present, guideline consensus do state that it should be treated as a DVT and anticoagulation should be elected. All right, when we come back, let's take a look specifically at ovarian vein thrombosis, according to a case controlled study from November 2017, which actually recommends the use of anticoagulation for therapy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. In November of 2017, a new case control study published in Obstetrics and Gynecology was released. This study followed patients from the Mayo Clinic from the 1990s up until 2015 and who had a diagnosis of either ovarian vein thrombosis or leg DVT. The lead author on that study was Charles Lentz et al., In this study, pulmonary embolism was found at presentation in about 6% of patients with ovarian vein thrombosis. However, it was present in about 16% of patients with leg DVT. In these groups of patients, anticoagulation was less common in the ovarian vein thrombotic group than in the DVT group. Venous thromboembolism recurrence was 6% at 1 year and 14% at 5 years for patients with ovarian vein thrombosis. Now, these percentages did not differ compared with those with DVT, even though those in the DVT group were more often anticoagulated. This difference between the treatment groups also probably accounts for the lack of benefits seen with anticoagulation treatment in ovarian vein thrombosis. Nonetheless, these inconsistencies, according to the authors, still calls for the need for more research in this area. And here's a clinical pearl. It is still, nonetheless, recommended by the Mayo Thrombophilia Clinic to at least consider anticoagulation with either a direct oral anticoagulant or a vitamin K antagonist in all patients with ovarian vein thrombosis since it is part of the deep venous system. 
According to this study, thrombophilia testing, when performed in patients with ovarian vein thrombosis, was less often positive compared with patients with traditional leg DVT. Now, here's a big clinical pearl. There is a link with ovarian vein thrombosis and malignancy. Let's explore that next. Cancer is the most important risk factor for ovarian vein thrombosis and twice as frequent compared with patients who have a leg DVT. Now, it's well established that patients with unprovoked venous thromboembolism carry a fourfold increased risk of occult malignancy, and 10% of these patients will have a new diagnosis of cancer within the ensuing year after the venous thromboembolism diagnosis. The most common cancer was ovarian cancer, followed by pancreatic and hepatic malignancies. Now, although recent trials assessing extensive cancer screening, including PET scans and CT scans, compared with limited testing, have failed to show a survival benefit in patients with unprovoked DVT, the striking association between ovarian vein thrombosis and cancer represents a different clinical scenario. So here it is. For example, in the November 2017 study just referenced, 44% of patients had an underlying malignancy. In a study of 196 patients with cancer-related ovarian vein thrombosis, 11% developed recurrent thrombotic events over a medium follow-up of 14 to 15 months. So in the cohort of 196 patients, active cancer was the only risk factor associated with recurrent thrombotic events. So given the strong association with ovarian vein thrombosis and malignancy, it becomes imperative to consider cross-sectional imaging like a CT or an MRI to assess for underlying malignancy, particularly if the diagnosis was made by ultrasound. Remember that ultrasound is somewhat limited by itself for the diagnosis of septic pelvic thrombophobitis and ovarian vein thrombosis. The majority of patients with ovarian vein thrombosis in the November 2017 study were identified by cross-sectioning imaging and thus the appropriate assessment had already been completed. According to the authors of that November 2017 study, identifying malignancy carried both survival and venous thromboembolism recurrence implications and greatly affected treatment decisions. All right, that was a lot of information. Why don't we come back to a quick, rapid-fire summary about septic pelvic thrombophobitis and specifically ovarian vein thrombosis next. All right, so now let's wrap up our discussion of septic pelvic thrombophobitis and ovarian vein thrombosis. The condition was first described in the late 1800s by von Recklinghausen. The condition is known to be much more frequent after cesarean section than after vaginal delivery. Septic pelvic thrombophobitis can also occur with infectious causes outside of obstetrics like pelvic inflammatory disease. And the link with ovarian malignancy or malignancy in general and ovarian vein thrombosis cannot be ignored. Therefore, pan-sectioning of the abdomen and the pelvis is recommended in patients that have ovarian vein thrombosis to rule out an occult malignancy. Finally, for treatment, in patients that have septic pelvic thrombophobitis without ovarian vein thrombosis, 
the mainstay of treatment is still intravenous antibiotic therapy without anticoagulation. However, if ovarian vein thrombosis is present because of its proximity and association with the deep venous system, OVT should be considered a form of DVT and anticoagulation is still recommended. Well, that wraps up our podcast. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.